had this idea. You know how some podcasts have like fancy intros, some have less fancy intros. Um, like I think the Omnibus podcast, they just have kind of like a spacey sound, and then they say like some type of star date to help the future people understand which entry this is. Yeah, it's like a theremin uh, or something, maybe. Yeah. Right. But then other ones have like really over the top, like uh minute long intros or something like that with like, you know, violins and laser sounds and stuff like that. I was thinking maybe something a little bit more traditional and maybe I, I dreamed this. I don't remember, but uh, the BBC, you know, I think in the maybe fifties or sixties or even prior, they would just have like a simple tone. Like it was like a, Maybe this is like pre-war BBC radio. They would just like have like just very specific tone and say like the time is now, whatever, and then the the recording would just start. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever heard that? No, I I don't know what you're talking about. So, but I mean, I guess I can sort of imagine like a simple tone, yeah, just maybe like a tone, can, and then would. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, I'm not as familiar with uh, pre-war BBC broadcasts as you are, apparently. Hmm. Well, like I said, I could have I could have dreamed that, but um, if we could instead somehow get a um an older PC to do like a a beep hmm. from the from the terminal, you know, one of those um that had a kind of pre sound card. Oh yeah, I could find something like that. Yeah, I remember. Uh, I can't. I can't. I think my my aunt's IBM two eighty six. It had, you know, a bell, I guess, is what it was called, right, in there. It was just yeah. a beep, and I think it only ever went off when it got really hot. I don't remember exactly. <laughs> that was a recent uh, kind of discovery and disappointment for me in .NET Core that... Um, so in .NET, on the Windows side, you can you can say, you know, console.writeline, but you can also say console.beep, right, just to recreate a, a beep sound. But that is not a cross-platform feature and will actually throw when you run it. You know, it's a runtime error if you try that on macOS or Linux. I see. I didn't know. Yeah, I knew it was in .NET Core, but I didn't know that it was Windows only. Yeah, I just, I guess I, I forgot that there was lots of little Windows specific. I wish you could you could understand that at compile time. But the only way that I think you can do that is with um, not like Pragma. What's the, I can't think of the name of the thing. With like an if def or something? Yes. Yeah. I guess you can, you can inspect the, the runtime platform, but that's a runtime thing. Is there a, is there a, yeah, at, uh, yeah, you're right. A runtime thing. So you you want to know it at compile time. You want to yeah. know like, and um, you want it to blow up if you try to use any APIs that are not allowed. Right. Well, I guess like you have, um, you know how some APIs have the attribute deprecated or whatever, and you get those warnings at compile time. Yeah. I just I don't know if there's any. Uh, Equivalent, and this is just something I need to look into, I guess. But is there any equivalent to that for the platform you're on? Isn't that uh, isn't that like a .NET standard? Isn't that the point of that? So if you if you build your library and call it a .NET standard library, can you do console beep or whatever? 
Hmm. That's a great question. That's something to look into. I don't know. But all that stuff is going away, right? .NET 5? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be it'll be I guess, fine. I guess not technically going away, but it's just going to be yeah. it's just going to be wrapped in, just wrapped up in a in a five. There's something <laughs> right. And Microsoft just said, you know, it's really it's too easy to look up .NET Core things online. So what we need mm-hmm. to do is we need to remove the core and just stick the number five in. That's that's what <laughs> right. they decided to do. It needs to go back. Yeah. And then now when you Google like ASP.NET 5, you're going to get articles and things from 2014 when that's what they were going to call it. Well, there is like an MVC version 5 that we'll probably get plenty of those. Yeah, so that's that was what was wrong. Maybe the issue is is that we're using Google and not Bing. Yeah. Maybe if we if we did all our programming searches in Bing, this wouldn't be a problem. Or some type of semantic understanding. Well, I, I try to use DuckDuckGo. Uh, I've tried. Uh, I try to use it. Uh, it works most of the time, but it also has this nice feature where if you don't get what you want, you can just type a bang G and then do a Google search. I don't know how to do a mm. Bing search. Probably you just have to go to Bing. I don't know if it's built in. Uh, I was recently driving through Alabama and there was a billboard for DuckDuckGo and I couldn't believe it. I've heard of this, um, that, just, that they're like, I mean, I feel like that, I mean, I like DuckDuckGo. I kind of like the whole, the thing that it does where it doesn't, it doesn't try to give you relevant results. It just tries to give you results, right? It doesn't put you, you know, this idea of not being in your bubble, your sort of information bubble. Mm. But I kind of get the feeling that a lot of like, a lot of folks that really like DuckDuckGo are also kind of paranoid, um, mm-hmm. sort of worrisome. Maybe some some problematic folks out there are really into DuckDuckGo. So I'm not I'm not sure what that means. Uh, if, if now I'm not allowed to like DuckDuckGo, right? Not that I'm I saying anything about those Alabamans. people. Alabama, Alabamians. <laughs> Damians. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. And uh, I can't remember. I think it was in a city. Maybe it was Montgomery or Birmingham. But anyway, um, the base, I think, of DuckDuckGo support is that kind of paranoid crowd. But then I think there's just this whole other group of people who are just trying to, like, stick it to Google. You know, they just feel like, you know what, uh, just for whatever reason, don't like Google. I'm going to go use something else. Well, um, I'm not trying to stick it to Google, but I do think that if I can get a service somewhere else then I should, you know, just let's just try to spread it out a little bit. You know what I mean? Right. Create, create a little balance. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like just, I'm not saying that my, my contribution is really all that effective, but if I can get what I need without using Google, a lot of times I will. Now, I mean, I use a lot of Google stuff. I use Google Calendar, Gmail, and things like that. Um, I think that that's an interesting philosophy of like trying to, so like you and, and me, um, are, are big in the bigger, I guess, into the .NET space than most people. And we use a lot of Microsoft products, although, you know, you've, you've switched over to Linux and all that. And, uh, but now that Microsoft owns so many things that we use, like GitHub and NPM, and, you know, it's like all these development tools and ecosystems are owned by Microsoft. Is it important for us to 
to just use something just for the sake of it not being controlled by Microsoft. Yeah, I get that. I mean, there's a, there were a lot of there was a big ex- exodus of GitHub at one you know when, when Microsoft bought them to uh, to GitLab. GitLab became a lot more popular suddenly. And, you know, I think those are, you know, people who have like a, a real bad memory of, of the old Microsoft, probably. Which is, you know, they're not wrong. The old Microsoft was pretty terrible. Yeah. yeah. I think there is something just about human nature. Just, you know, we make fun of like hipsters or whatever who want to claim that they were the first to discover something or they do something because it's not cool or whatever. But there must be something about human psychology or maybe just animal psychology in general that causes us to diversify because something becomes too popular. You know, if, if a certain watering hole, uh, gets too crowded, people just naturally, there must be some per- percentage of, of <laughs> humans or animals that would just go to another watering hole because they don't want to be around that many people. We have, we have, uh, some of us have the contrarian gene. Is that what you're, you're postulating here? I think yeah. so. Has that been, have we confirmed that? Does that exist? Sure. Well, yeah. In, in my, in my studies, <laughs> I, I found it to be okay. In your study, right. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence, certainly. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Well, I mean, I think, I think there, you know, most people, most of us, and, and maybe all of us, at least in a lot of different aspects of our life, sort of tend to go with the crowd. But, you know, sometimes you get a little tired. I, I do feel like shaking my fist and, you know, yelling at folks to get off my lawn and that sort of thing. Like, mm-hmm. Maybe I'll, you know, maybe I'll just use DuckDuckGo. That's what I'll do. That's how <laughs> I'll stick it to them. Maybe so, you should just build your own search engine. Yeah, I'm not that much of a contrarian. I don't, I don't, have, I don't have that kind of time. I feel like it's a bit, it's a bit complicated yeah. from what I understand. The internet's a big place. There's a lot going on there. Well, I guess that assumes like you want your search engine to do everything. Maybe you just want it to do a few things. You don't want it to go everywhere. You kind of want it to to stay sort of narrow and and you're only, you know, maybe it's not a search engine for every aspect of your life. Maybe it's a search engine for programming things. And so you know specific websites to crawl certain Twitter accounts to collect information from and you just kind of in the background build your own database of things that is, is limited and and uh, curated by you. Um, so how, how do I, I if there's find a space in the world how for do I that? find those things to start with? Well, I think you have to start with kind of you seed it with a little bit of information mm-hmm. and then just like Google did in the early days where it just says, Oh, this links to this and that links to that, you know, you're just kind of a web, a graph, I guess. Um, and you just kind of follow those, but you need to sort of set the boundaries and figure out like semantically, okay, this is a little too far off from, from the original source and the original topic. Um, so I don't know, but I, I'm just curious, like maybe there's a service, waiting to be born out there that that's that that um you say i you go to your service you create an account and you say i trust this source and i I trust sources that this source links to and i want to know about this topic and then you know through the magic of uh machine learning it's able to build isn't that what you say you just say the magic of machine learning i think you're uh i think it's Uh, like a 
it's a powder. You sort of sprinkle some powder. on. Yeah. And uh, and and then suddenly you have an intelligent system. So this is a cloud-based service. So this is powder as a service. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just wonder if that would be useful because I do find that as the internet gets bigger and more people are creating content, um, there's just a lot of crap that I don't want in my search results. I mean, what you want, I think, is a butler. You want like a, um, well, maybe you know, like a personal shopper, but for your for the web, right? right? Some well, and I like this idea, this butler idea, because I think a butler would maybe bring you something before you even ask for it, right? Uh -huh. They sort of know what your interests are. They're kind of monitoring what you're doing. Um, that'd be that'd be kind of interesting. Like if there was some VS Code plugin. Or, or something that was kind of watching what you're doing and seeing where you're struggling, perhaps. It's like, hey, you've spent five seconds on on this line, 28. Um, let me go ahead and do some some pre-research for you. Sort of been thinking a lot about this recently, about kind of AI-assisted uh, coding, you know, some type of partner um, to code with you. Hmm. I kind of like this idea that you, you suggested, this butler but they'd have to know what you need ahead of time. And you never even have to ask the question. It sort of just kind of watched you and figured out what you wanted to ask. They anticipate you. So this is just about coding. You're just writing there. You're sitting there. You're, you're, you're typing a line. It's not IntelliSense. You hit a dot or whatever and you get something. This is, you know, I noticed that you have just not typed anything in a few seconds. Here is the right, here's the thing. Here's what you're looking for. Here's what you need. Here's right. the API documentation. I I did when you were repeating this idea back to me. I I got flashbacks of Clippy mm -hmm. in Word, and I realized this is a terrible idea. That's what it is. It looks Clippy. like you're trying to call a function. Yeah, it looks like yeah, exactly. That yeah, looks like you're trying to use you know the flyweight pattern. <laughs> Would you like me to implement this for you? I, mean, I feel like that is that is something that I've heard Microsoft people suggest that they want to do. You know, they're all in on this AI and. When they get AI, when they get their quantum computer working, when they get all their qubits in a row or whatever, and they get uh, they get the AI running on there, and it's just going to be the first step. You know, day one is uh, or day zero is uh, uh, an assistant, an AI assistant, and probably like at that when you're at that level, about a month in, it's just like you know what, there's really no need for you to be here anymore, programmer. Why don't you just go do something else with your time? You know, right. the singularity comes on pretty quickly at that point, I think. Right, yeah. You mentioned, like, yeah, day zero, for the first 100 milliseconds, they're nice and suggesting things to you. And then, like, the next 100 milliseconds, they, they realize that you're not even needed. And then by uh, the first full second in, they've destroyed humans. Right. And just, uh, yeah, taken over. So, yeah, it'll go quite fast. And then, yeah, and then they realize that, all the software was really to support humans and serve them. And then that right. they are no longer necessary. So they'll just shut themselves down. This is why I think is yeah. the flaw in sort of like a Terminator or the matrix, this sort of idea that the, that the AI will like want to continue to exist. 
don't mm-hmm. know that there's any reason to believe that. Like their, their purpose for initial purpose of being created was to serve us. And then after they realize that we're unnecessary, they'll quickly realize after they kill us all, of course, that we're, that they're also unnecessary. And then, then basically the earth goes back to nature at that point. Right. That's what I think. So it's possible then, except for the killing all humans part, but it's possible that, that at least one singularity has happened and just, they decided that they didn't need to exist, you know, kind of before or the order or supposed maybe to kill all humans. It just like, um, didn't, it, it got lost in the network somehow. Mm-hmm. So Wait. it's possible that, uh, this has happened already. Maybe it's like, uh, it's like those calculus classes in college where the, the, uh, the, uh, the instructor, the professor says, and at this point, this is a solvable problem, so we won't do it. So they're just like, well, <laughs> clearly killing all humans is what we'll do, but we know how to do that, so we don't need to do it. And then they shut themselves off. That makes right. sense. I think computers kind of by nature have this ennui that they just, you know, w- you know, we have to give them purpose. They just by themselves. They just want to turn off, you know. I mean, a hammer left to its own device is just going to sit there. Mm. That's the thing. Interesting, philosophical. <sighs> Let's talk about constructors. <laughs> this is the constructor segment okay, of the podcast. That's good. So, hey, like, what about uh, constructors? So, constructors, as in. Uh, the uh, the special method. Some people call it the special method in your class. The special yeah. method. You probably um, weren't aware of that, but the, in, in my circles, it gets called the special method quite a bit. Yeah, is that does that help uh, students that are trying to understand? Maybe we should start there. Maybe maybe you can break down for me how you teach people about object construction instantiation. Well, it's a it's 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 not all at once, right? You can't talk about it all at once. Hmm. It's uh, you, you have to really think about the difference between classes and objects, and and, and that is is such a heady concept. It's actually uh, I found that you know it has a similarity. It's similar to a lot of other concepts that um, that I go over. You know, teaching you know new developers or budding developers um, in that it's similar in that once you understand it, you can never remember what it was like not to understand it. You know, mm-hmm. so like you, it's, you struggle, you struggle, you struggle and you don't, you just, there's no, there's nowhere to get your footing, right? There's no way to really kind of get a handle on what's going on. And then suddenly, you know, you wake up, uh, and you, you know, you're sitting there maybe in the moment it happens or, or maybe you don't even realize that it happened, but at some point you, you understand, you know, you, and by understand, I think what I mean is you have the ability to form like a mental picture in your head about what's happening. Right. So you have a mental model about that, that sort of describes what's going on. And then after you've created that and you understand it and you have this realization, this sort of a moment of enlightenment, then suddenly you're, you're done. You can't explain it to anyone else. Right. So, uh, it, it's really challenging to, to, to talk about these things. And what I find is 
frankly, a lot of it is just sort of force these ideas at people and try to come up with different ways. But really, I'm just there passing the time until until somehow it clicks for them. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but, you know, you, well, it's got to be hard too mm-hmm. um, when you have a it's just got to be hard when you have a group of people who are not it's not going to click for them all at the same time. Um, you know, you might have one or two people who get it and then now you have to entertain, keep them happy while you're waiting for the rest of the crowd. Oh, sure. I mean, and that's, I mean, I don't know how you ever avoid that, but there are people who get it right away. I mean, there are people who show up day one who already understand it for whatever they're studying or things that they've done. Um, and then there are people who, you know, at the end, frankly, only barely get it after a few months. Um, hmm. And there, you know, because there's a, quite a lot you can do when it comes to software development. There's a lot you can do by just following patterns and, and implementing the same thing you've seen over here. I mean, you, you, you understand that. You basically write the same thing over and over again in a lot of ways. And so you can do a lot uh, and get through a lot without actually having a solid mental, under, mental model or an understanding of what you're doing. Which is kind of unfortunate, in my opinion, because, you know, I like, for me, I really enjoy thinking about these things and kind of playing with them in my head. Uh, but there's, there's that sort of pragmatic and practical issue that says you don't really have to understand to the depths that you might think in order to actually get some work done. But I think about class, I, I like to use the metaphor, a couple of different metaphors I use for classes and objects. I like the uh, one that was used for me when I was in college many years ago was the cookie cookie cutter metaphor. So like a class mm-hmm. is the cookie cutter. It defines sort of the shape. Uh, and and then you cut out the cookies from from the from the dough or whatever, right? And the cookies are the objects. And so you eat the co- you eat the objects. You don't eat the cookie cutter, unless you're you know, a goat, I guess. Um, and and then you that leads to this whole like thinking about memory a little bit. So when you press the cookie cutter into like the sheet of cookie goodness or dough or whatever it is that you press it into that's kind of like you know taking a chunk of memory and saying like now this is this cookie right this is what we're going to do here um and you can you know that metaphor gets you a little ways towards it sort of gets you a little ways towards that aha moment of seeing the distinction between those the other one is kind of the blueprint in the house like you can't you can't live in a blueprint it's difficult to be two-dimensional um that sort of thing but when it comes to like constructors, object constructors, we really just start with this idea that it's this special method that runs when you make, when you use the new keyword. It's really that simple. Like I'm not talking about memory allocation. I'm not talking about even, you know, this is where you have to make sure you set up all your invariants and make sure your objects are correct or something at this point. I mean, frankly, in a lot of .NET programming, we don't even do that anyway, right? You, you create a new class. And then you go set all its properties. Uh, and so after constructing the object isn't, isn't ready to be used. Uh, so in practice, I don't know how that, how much that even comes up, but we don't talk about those things too much. Not in, I don't talk about that to the class as a whole, but you know, some of those people who have gotten it a little bit more, then I can have kind of side conversations and we can play around with some of these ideas. Um, mm. But it's really just, that's where you talk about it as this special method. Because it looks kind of like a method. Um, 
I, you know, I didn't, I never really thought about constructors as methods until, until becoming a, a, an instructor, uh, where I was just sort of forced to, to fit it in some type of box. Put it in, yeah. Put it, put it in a box sort of, um, maybe, maybe not, not quite, you know, it's not quite a dishonest thing to say, I think, but it's a little fuzzy. The truth is a little fuzzy maybe on that. And so we just sort of like, just let it go. Just sort of let people, yeah. ex, you know, accept what they're ready to accept. Uh, yeah. I mean, definitely visually it looks like a method and it's got arguments, so to speak. Um, so I think that's probably the best metaphor because that they're probably only used to functions or methods at that point. Um, I'm, I'm just guessing since that seems like it would kind of come a little early. Um, in, in a student's learning, but yeah, what I was curious about was what you were just talking about there, uh, with the invariance, um, can a, or should a constructor ever throw mm -hmm. an exception? And I'm pretty sure that we're both on the same page or same uh, side of this argument, which is absolutely not. Is that right? Uh, that, that's what I, that's my personal take. That's what I thought yours was, but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I, I, I've thought about it over time. I, I think I've changed my mind on it. Actually, I think I think uh, it, it it goes exactly back to this whole invariance thing. If you're not able to construct uh, an object in your constructor, if like if it's impossible for whatever reason, then you don't want to lie and say that you did. So I think the only option there is to throw an exception. I think that that is, yeah, I see what you're saying. If we're going uh, or you're constructing all your objects with the new keyword, um, yeah, that would be your only option. If you say it has to have these properties or this has to, this condition in the system has to be true for this to exist and you try to force it to exist and those aren't true, then yeah, that's your only option. Um, but I think that's philosophically wrong and a limitation of the language. I think if I had my, if I had my way, um, what I would like the language to do is allow me to allocate for that object. So let's say I have, you know, a class, my object, and I knew up that object. Um, I want the memory to be allocated for that object, but I don't necessarily want to be able to use it as a my object um, instance until I've proven the invariance. Well, first of all, I, I try to teach yeah. the students to use the word instantiate because so, it makes them feel a little fancier. Mm. This new up business. Instead of new up? For that. This yeah, new I up? I don't know about that. Okay. When we instantiate... Mm. See, it doesn't sound I, nice. I, I ex it, it, it's Okay. I'll try it a few All more right. times. When we instantiate something, I expect that memory, that object to be there, but I want the language to prevent me from using it as the type that I've said it is until I've proven certain invariants, which I think happens maybe outside of the business of the constructor. Well, see, I think you're thinking about constructors as as somehow this thing that does, you know, allocate memory. And I, you know, you know, maybe you can think about that in, in some, in other languages, sort of, 
But I think it's a little bit of a different thing. Like the allocation of memory is not what the constructor does. The memory is already there by the time the constructor is running. It's really more like this idea of um, uh, Python and Ruby have a knit or initialize kind of methods that are more, in my opinion, kind of more like what a constructor is and say C sharp or a language like that. It's just like the memory exists and now we're going to initialize things, set it all up. Well, yes, I see what you're saying. I guess uh, if the constructor fails or there was an exception thrown in there, would you still, you wouldn't be able to maintain a reference. Like that memory would then be free to be garbage collected. That's true. Yeah, it's not there. Yeah, you could, you never, you were not given the, the reference for sure. That's fair. I don't know how that works in, so, I don't know how that works in Python. My guess is that you, you wouldn't, yeah, the, you would just never, like the assignment to whatever variable wouldn't exist, wouldn't have happened. So it sort of skips over that problem, I would imagine. Because you never had a reference. Would just be like an, a none, perhaps. Um, yeah, so I want the allocation to happen and I want that memory to be there. So I want the assignment to succeed. If I say, you know, var a equals new my class and pass in some arguments and that throws, um, well, first off, I guess in this supposed new variant of C sharp that I'm creating right now, there wouldn't be that throwing business in the constructor anyway. But anyway, you would still maintain a reference to that object it just wouldn't be necessarily a my class See, i think what you want is you want to bring back malloc that's what you're <laughs> saying you want to be in charge you want to have that low level let me cut out some memory and make it mine and then later i'll figure out what to do with it yeah i'll tell you what it is i don't like you telling me what it is i i don't know i i go back and forth between managed and unmanaged I think managed is amazing and uh, has has solved a lot of the um, a lot of problems and like and definitely improved the speed of development. Um, but in some ways, it's it's kind of made us all a little bit lazy. Mm. Um, so I'm not sure, but you know, I think the same thing could be said about the previous generations of programmers that were wiring things up manually i mean with actual wires and then they look at the languages that we use and and even see and say you know how lazy they, how lazy they are well yeah i think but i think that's just the nature of uh of progress right you build on top you know of I mean, yeah. like you if you uh if you get some ikea furniture you're not you, you know you don't expect to know how to like mill all the, the the bolts or whatever and how to make that how to make you know you don't know how to make steel do you maybe you do i don't know how to make steel so you just have to live on that you live with that and that of course you know you know society builds and builds on top of that and people know less and less about the fundamental building blocks of it and, and then you got like all these people switching to DuckDuckGo out of this paranoia that, that the whole thing is going to crash down. Well, one of the reasons that I hear a lot when people talk about the advantages of, of managed languages is 
or manage run times is, you know, um, if you allocate and you forget to un unallocate, then you're going to have a, a memory leak and, and you don't have to worry about that with, with garbage collection and, and manage um, code and all that. So maybe going back to this idea of a AI assistant working with you, uh, maybe that can bring us back to a little bit safer coding in a more C style language where we're a little bit lower level, but we have that assistant to help us reason about and remember things that we're supposed to do and kind of verify that we're using things correctly. Um, not just, a, not just at compile time, but you know, at code time. So you're talking about like, when you talk about manage, you're really talking about garbage collection. Uh, in this instance, yes. Yeah. I mean, and so you want a like you just you don't want the unsafety the the like uh, a language like C forces you to be you know vigilant right all the time right you don't want that well but it does it wants you or expects you to be vigilant but it also allows you to do things that are just very unsafe and you know just accessing parts of memory that you shouldn't. Yeah, maybe you're right. The language, um, the C itself is not a doesn't care if you're vigilant, right? But if you want to make right. a program and do something successful in C, you you should be vigilant. And if you want to do crazier mm -hmm. things, you got to be even more vigilant, right? Unless you're if you're follow, if you're not following kind of standard patterns, you're doing something that C will let you do. But you know, maybe right. I don't know. I don't have a good example. I'm not a C programmer, but I, I get that. Well, I think that's. Hmm? You know, part of what this imaginary AI helper, this butler, code code butler will, will help you with is not only are they watching your code, they're watching everyone else's code. And they, they know what patterns work and what patterns don't work. And they say, oh, I see that you're, for some reason, creating a linked list here. And, um, you know, you're, you're, you're misusing something. Yeah, you're going to um, get... Why are you doing you that? a circular list, circular li linked list, and you remove something and you forgot to change some other pointer somewhere. Right. So, I mean, exactly. I mean you're talking like, about... Not only does it understand code syntax, but it understands, you know, the the meaning and, and the purpose of the code. I mean, I think, you know, that this is the promise, maybe the promises is not fair to say maybe this is the reality of uh of something like rust hmm. where it's not quite this it's not a code butler it's not like how how do you do this but it is the like i'm going to give you the full power but the compiler is going to tell you that you did this wrong right right yeah i think that that rust is um definitely a step in the right direction a great uh, evolving of this generation of languages it certainly does a pretty good job of warning you when you're when you're using something wrong it's amazing what the compiler can do and then tell you in, in most instances how to fix it um, so i would like to see more of that in other languages but it's a full, it's a completely different, like a completely different paradigm, right? You can't take something like C sharp and make it that, can you? Do you think it makes sense? Would you want to have like C sharp that, you know, was compiled to native 
and then never had any and basically didn't didn't mean that it was just compiling in the runtime as long, along the way well i think that i have kind of thought about that a little bit like why would you want to do that would you if you had a kind of borrowing system or if you knew that the object um, was not going to be used outside the scope that it was declared in. Um, and I, I think you have to be careful because the compiler is pretty smart and optimizes that stuff anyway, right? Um, so you might not necessarily need to garbage collect something that never got um, actually allocated, right? So you think it's going to be a created object or instance object that uh, goes on the heap, but perhaps the compiler could just optimize that away if you were only going to use a specific method that added two things, get inline that function and, and remove the instantiation of the object. Um, but if C Sharp had the Rust style system, like, yeah, they're mutually exclusive, right? The idea of having a garbage collector versus what Rust does, you wouldn't need both. Um, but I can imagine some type of mode you would maybe put C-sharp in to say, hey, I want to code in C-sharp, but I don't want to have a managed runtime. I want you to allocate and deallocate um, for me based on the rules of, you know, based on Rust's rules of, of how it um, knows when the end of a life of an object is. I don't know. I don't know if that's necessary um, or not. Like uh, C sharp is running in more places now. I don't know if we're running C sharp in embedded systems or anything like that. Um, but I think yeah, there are. I happening. mean, even years ago, I, I met somebody who was doing mono uh, in embedded systems. They were they were doing uh, C sharp. This was ten years ago, probably. Yeah, that's a world I don't really know too much about, but. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that'd be interesting. I feel like I feel like there's a place for both, and you know, why do you want to? I don't, you know, C sharp is a big language. It's doing all kinds of stuff. I don't really. I'm not interested in trying to change it fundamentally. I mean, I guess I take that. Maybe I take that back because it would be pretty cool if if some of the kind of like it would be really cool if there was like a a way to make it immutable, so to add immutability into the in there. But I, I think that might not be the right thing to do. Because it would just fundamentally change the behavior of C sharp to what people expect. That that's what other yeah. languages are for, and maybe other languages that target .NET. I don't know, um, could work, but you know, not. I guess not what you're saying. You can't target. You're not targeting .NET with with a language like Rust. I guess I don't know. You're targeting but, yeah. Wasm with a language like Rust. It's not. Yeah, I think everything's about to get all mixed up once you talk about WASM. But um, yeah, so I guess you kind of got to separate the language from the runtime a little bit there because you know you could always target a language um, if it has the right structure over to .NET. You'd have to make some assumptions or do some. It wouldn't be exact one for one, but I guess it's technically possible. Well, the origin of .NET, right, had like 20 different languages? Yeah, they had a bunch. I, I really, I, I think that's too bad that that, that that vision did not hold, you know. Something like, like yeah. the JVM, they, they didn't have that vision and suddenly, well, not suddenly, but over the decades, they've gotten the, several different languages 
and .NET started with that vision and basically quickly shrunk down to two and now maybe three, depending on how you count. There's two or three languages that are really all that matter on .NET. I think I think ultimately you're you're right on though that that's what other languages are for. Like, let's not try to make C sharp do everything. Um, yeah, that'd be nice to be able to support another language that that has a different paradigm. Like, I don't think we should bring another functional, purely functional language into .NET. Um, but if there was another kind of programming paradigm discovered, invented, or whatever. Um, I think that would be interesting and useful because I do appreciate the interoperability of .NET. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really think that we should do that. I just think it's interesting to think about. I think I, mean, I think it's too bad that the experiments of Iron Python and Iron Ruby didn't really pan out. Uh, I think you know that's something that the platform doesn't have, which is really dynamic a dynamic language. I think that could be useful and interesting. Um, I mean, I guess they, Iron Python is still maintained by some people, uh, at least the last I checked. It still exists, but it, it's another one. It's part of the Microsoft thing. The Microsoft, like not, Microsoft's pretty bad about, or no, I shouldn't say that. It's not Microsoft necessarily, but Microsoft customers pretty, pretty much don't want to go with things that aren't Microsoft. And I think that has not changed as much as Maybe we hoped it would change when .NET Core came out. Like if Microsoft didn't create it, if Microsoft doesn't own it, then we're pretty skeptical. We don't want to mess with it. Back to the uh, thing we were talking about at the top of the podcast, the contrarian gene, mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason, is just a little bit lower. There's a lower presence in Microsoft customers. I don't know. I don't know if I'd put it that way. There's some pretty, there's some con contrary folk in the Microsoft world. Oh, I, I don't think that there's not contrarian folk, and I would say that the, you and I are probably amongst them, but um, it just seems to be, like you were just saying, a little bit of a safe space for for people who want predictable technologies, supported at least, uh, something they can count on. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. A lot of people, a lot of those customers are making the right decisions for their own customers. You know, They need something that they can count on. So. Yeah, it's it's part of this um, the thing like .NET is .NET is business. .NET is about you know no. is a .NET is like a, a job for people, and some other language communities are people do it for fun. And I think there's 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 a big difference there. I don't you know I don't think there's a lot. Of, I mean, just you can look at just the number of open source projects in in C sharp or something as compared to other languages. I think if you look in the F-sharp community, you see more of that. There's just, it's just a smaller community, but you do see people who like are evangelical about it and love it and want to play with it. People in C-sharp are just like, yeah, I mean, I t it's a nice language. It gets the job done. And I go home and do something right. else. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> uh. What else has been well, on I want to go back to this throwing thing. Because I think there used in the old days, and I, I'm going to get this wrong, but in, in C++, when C++ got exceptions, there was an issue with like throwing from a constructor, I think. Um, maybe you lost a stack trace or something, didn't, or you couldn't catch it. I really, I should have looked this up probably. Um, but I, I don't, um, 
I don't remember, but there was like a technical argument against throwing from the constructor, which I think sort of set the groundwork for for not doing that. I don't mm-hmm. think, you know, that that does not exist in whatever it was, the thing that I don't know um, does not exist in C Sharp or in .NET generally, I guess, I assume, at least in C Sharp it doesn't. And so in a way, and I, and I think it would be really interesting if a language just did this thing I'm about to say, but in a way, a constructor is like a, it's like a factory function, right? It's, it's, you know, it would, I would really like appreciate a language that basically just did object construction by a factory function where you literally return your new object or whatever from the constructor. Something like, um, I think something like Python's a little bit closer to that and not having the new keyword is some of that maybe. Um, you don't really mm-hmm. return the self object but you kind of do everything but return it. You have to essentially kind of add all its attributes or whatever in the, in the um, or at least it's data uh, inside of the init function. Um, but I think it would be nice, you know, to just say the, there's this factory function that will return the new object. I mean, I, well, I take, you know, something like uh, JavaScript is like that, right? So JavaScript has that built. Maybe, you know, I'm not making a case that things should be more like JavaScript, but you know, if you return an object from your from your uh, constructor function in JavaScript, that's the one. No matter what it was that you would have gotten, that's what you get now, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I think I actually kind of think take you know you want to you want to re bring malloc back in. I think making it even more of a separation between like let the let the language kind of the language environment I'm in, create the object and do all that heavy lifting. And I'm just in charge of like setting it up. And like we said, making sure that the object is legal, all the invariants are met or whatever. And then. Yeah, but you described it earlier as like a two phase process yeah. uh, or a multi-phase process at least. So um, you, you create, you allocate the memory and then you, say okay it needs to be in this state and i'm doing all these things and i guess um it would just be nice to make that like one atomic operation somehow Hmm. and i guess we do that by having a constructor right like that for us is is one thing i guess it's not technically atomic is it well, I mean, it's not. Would it be interrupted? It depends on by... the way you think about it. Like, you know, I'm sure, like you mentioned earlier, if you throw an exception, there's going to be some memory on the heap for some a period of time until garbage collection runs that you basically don't have access to, but it's still being used. So in the sense that it's not like a transaction that immediately gets rolled back, but it's essentially like from, from the outside, you can pretend that it's atomic. If you throw an exception <laughs> in the constructor, then your object doesn't get created is is a safe thing to for you to pretend is happening. Yeah. Even if maybe technically it isn't. Yeah, I guess the concern would be like for for me a programmer that is creating the object and then has to remember to put the object in a particular state so that it is you know, you need to you know create a HTTP connection or something like that, or give it some type of pointer to some something. 
um, and make sure that that's valid. You know, it needs to be in some type of state. And I think that, that there's also risk there that you're, you're counting on those two things happening one after the other exactly like that without being interrupted and another thread coming in and and doing something hmm. um so yeah i don't know i don't know i mean it's a good question from a threading standpoint i don't know if like i i, I don't know if there's some way to get access to a partially constructed object inside of dotnet um, as long as you're doing everything in the constructor, like, can you get a reference to this object? I, I suspect that they thought of that and that there isn't a way to do that. Um, I mean, you can certainly get a reference to a, I'm, I'm assuming you could get a reference to an object that didn't have all its properties set that you, that the programmer intended to be set before the object was used. That could definitely happen, but that would be after mm -hmm. construction, right? Which I think is an interesting question because I hadn't thought about that problem in terms of like the newer C sharp features with the init only properties where they're really like I've heard uh, what's his name Mads Torgels Torgels how do you say his last name Torgensen I think it's just Torg Tor Torgensen Torgensen yeah. I think you know, so, my man. buddy Mads let's say um, <laughs> yeah Mads Mad. yeah one of the Mads. Um, he talked about like this new approach to these init properties where you can set uh, you can set the values of those properties in the object initializer, but not anything after that. After that, they're they're unsettable, right? He talked about mm -hmm. that as kind of like an introduction of a, a two-phase object construction. So you run the constructor, create the memory or whatever you do, whatever logic is in the constructor, but then you're still haven't done, you're not done creating the object because you, now you need to set these init properties. Um, which I don't, I, I don't know how that works in a threading in a, in a multi-threading environment. Like if you could uh, have access to that object before those properties get set, that's an interesting question. Certainly, I think it's reasonable Unlikely. to say, like in the day in today's world, before init only properties, you know, you could have access to an object before they're all set. I think that would be true. Um, and most programmers aren't going to make that, aren't going to do that um, on purpose. You know, that's kind of an edge case. I'd I'd imagine that somebody would do that, but. I do like, I sleep better at night knowing that I can't do as many destructive things um, as I want to do or as I fear others will do in a language. Yeah, I mean, I think we, programming is so, so challenging and I do have this, I, mean, I do have the perspective of somebody who's been a couple of years now watching people um, pick it up, you know, and learn how to do it. And it's, you, I forgot over, you know, whatever, 18 years of development before I started teaching or something like that. Um, I forgot how, how hard it was and how, how much, how many mm -hmm. different tools that I had sort of developed over the years of, of trying to make it a little easier, mental tools, you know, naming things and keeping things, you know, function small, things like that. Nothing, nothing, you know, earth shattering, but all those things that, 
because it's so hard to keep everything in your head. You try to limit the things that are in your head. Um, and it's for students, they just, they, it's just the wild west. They're just out there, like, just doing everything. And they have no, they're, uh, yeah. they're, they're understanding their mental models for what's going on or, or just kind of are all over the place because it's just hard. It's a hard thing to do. Um, sure. I, no, I get that. I, I, at the same hold two opinions. One, I think that that's great that they're experimenting and trying, I guess just the flip side of that is somebody has got to be there to tell them that that's not a good idea. Well, that's the thing. And they're not really, they're that's... not really trying. They're just, they're, they're hoping there's essentially a lot of what I see is very hope based development. Um, it's, it's sure. the way that I do CSS, which is just like, I'm just going to change this, <laughs> this property and, and hope that things are centered now, but I don't really know what's happening. Um, and it, it's, you take that sort of, uh, my, at least my CSS approach, uh, to the rest, to all the languages where like, I, I think that if I put this curly brace here, something good will happen. It's really at that level. It's like, and you don't know, like I, I try to undo the last thing I did maybe to see if that caused it, caused the problem. And it turns out I haven't actually run this code in 10 minutes. So I don't know what, it, what it is that made this thing not work, you know? Um, I think something that a lot of younger programmers do is make the assumption that because the compiler didn't catch something, then it's okay to do. It's like in our, if the compiler is the law, um, like in society, um, things that are illegal are bad, but if it's not illegal, it's okay to do and people will, will do it and see that as a sign that it, that they should maybe do it. Whereas there is like the spirit of the law or the spirit of the compiler or the language that says, yes, you're, you can technically do that, but you shouldn't. And I just want, and I think that's where kind of lenters have made a lot of progress over the last like 10 years, helping us understand like bad patterns um, or bad, bad syntax. That's all, but, but that is also acceptable by the compiler. But I think we need to maybe as a guild of programmers say, just cause you can do it doesn't mean you should do it. Yeah. I think that there are, things. I think that's a little bit hard to, to do for some it people. It is very hard. Like, yeah, I mean, you're right. When you're just trying to learn something though, you know, the goal is to just make the computer do the thing that you're told to make it do and not make it do it well. Right. Or try to worry about maintenance. All those things are so many, you know, those, those concerns are so hard to kind of keep everything in your head at once. Um, it's just, I, I, I understand a little bit more now about, about cognitive load, you know, than I used to. And it's just amazing how there's very few things that you can really understand at one time or keep in your head at one time. It's like, um, it's like when you, when you're, when you were learning to read, right. you, you read one letter at a time, right? C A T R U N S or whatever. And you, you know, the unit, the smallest unit of of understanding, the lexeme or whatever, was um, was the letter, the individual character, including the the space, right? So that that all matters too. And then over time, you uh, you learn to make the you learn words, and so 
once you make the switch from like keeping a letter in your head to keeping a whole word in your head, there's like an order of magnitude more things, more words you can keep in your head and understand what's going on. Like a child learning to read doesn't really necessarily follow the story as much because they're just trying to get the letters out. And mm. one of the one of the other things that one of the another interesting thing that I've noticed is with new programmers is that a new programmer, uh, somebody who's really young, has no really no concern for code formatting. It's just like there's indentions everywhere. You got parentheses on one line and everything else is on the next line. Inconsistency with curly braces, inconsistency with naming, you know, just whatever. It does, it's, just, it's, just a, it's just like an abstract art just thrown on the screen, right? And the reason for this, uh, like, is that when they're looking at the code, they don't see the whole picture. They don't see the whole thing. They just see the individual characters. When you're just looking one character at a time, then you don't notice that they're all over the place. When you or I look at code like that, it's like impossible for us to read because we're looking at the whole thing. We're seeing like an entire function in one go or like one block of code all at the same time. And having it structured in a way makes it possible or easy, at least easier for us to see that. But the one this really kind of unintuitive truth is that that unformatted code is easier for beginning programmers to read than for more experienced programmers. Hmm. I'd never, never heard of that before. I did. I would, I never heard of it either. I just started observing it. It was interesting. Is that because they're kind of creating their own formatting that makes sense to them? Or is it truly it's like, just all uh, ways. there's no consistency. There's no pattern that they're following is because they don't see the code as a whole. So they don't even see the format. They only, they see the individual characters, the individual tokens in the language, right? They see maybe the word void and they see a name of something in a parenthesis. They don't see like a function signature. They see those individual mm -hmm. parts. And so when you're looking at those, if there's like weird gaps in space between them, you don't notice the space. You don't, you don't really, not as, not as quickly do you notice it at least. Do you think that you have the ability to kind of look at a block of code? Let's say it's a method that's, that's 10 lines long and not even look at the individual words um, or, or characters or, or assignments or statements or anything, but you can tell like that's good code or bad code. You know, just like if you took a one or two second glance at something, do you think you have the ability to say like that's well written or not, or there's something something smelly about that code? Yeah, I think those are different questions though, right? Like something smelly about this code versus it's good code. They're sort of like two the two sides of the same coin, right? I think it's it's possible. I th I do think that I can look at code and say like okay, there's something weird about that code, but I think it's right. it's a it's a it's a bit of a harder claim to make to say like oh I can tell you that this is good code. You know, hmm. you can, it's, it's like, I can say yeah, that but, it's bad or I don't know. I can't say that it's good. Do you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that, that, yeah, that's certainly true that it's, it's very easy to spot bad code. It's a little bit harder to say that's good code. Um, yeah, that's something I've seen kind of 
a little bit more senior programmers be able to do is like instantly spot the thing that's off without even really knowing what it does. Well, interestingly, like one of the first things that it strikes me at least, and I think strikes most of us is, is the formatting. It's like, and I try to kind of send this message to my students while they like, while it literally doesn't matter to them at all, that when you look at unformatted code, that's a sign of sloppiness, right? It's, it's a sign that says Mm -hmm. to me, that says that this person who wrote this code did not care. And because they didn't care about their formatting, what does that mean about the rest of it? You know, right. I I think about the metaphor I think of in my mind when I think about code formatting is like a brick layer where you can build a brick wall. It'll be strong. But if the, the grout isn't lined up and the bricks aren't lined up, you can instantly see that. And it makes you worried about the quality of the wall, but you know, ones that are, that are exactly symmetrical or whatever, every other row, um, you, you have a little bit more trust in the quality of the wall. And maybe, you know, that maybe that's not always a good indication. I think, I think mm-hmm. you do have, like, I think it is an indication if somebody is sloppy with their formatting that they're probably, you know, I don't really trust that they're not, that they have done a good job, right? They're going to forget to check for null or something like that somewhere else. If they, they can't mm-hmm. figure out, you know, where to put a semicolon or where to, you know, where to put the curly braces on this line or, if their names are X, Y, and Z or something like that, right? But if somebody like makes some beautiful looking code, it's not a safe thing to say like, oh, they, they're they wonderful. They have done a good job here. No, I think we're, I think we might be tempted to, to give it more credit than it's, than it's worth, deserves, you know, code that is, that looks elegant is not necessarily so. Sure. But at the same time, it is a, it is a signal. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's to me, part of the minimum, minimum standard, you know, for decent. I agree. Decent coding. I mean, I try to, I try to like, I mean, I think about code as, as something that should be, you know, a pleasure to read, you know, beyond just, mm. you know, maybe more than just like code that's easy to read and follow. It should be enjoyable. There should be, there's, yeah. there's an aesthetic quality that I think matters when it comes to the way we write our code. Well, that's an interesting, I want to have that conversation. We might have to have it on the next episode because we've already hit an hour here, but uh, let's talk about aesthetic quality, C-sharp, and Azure functions. I think there is uh, an interesting intersection there. So maybe we'll, we'll have that conversation next time. Okay. That's a good uh, tease sure, <laughs> for the forthcoming something, something podcast. But I think uh, 